Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. How's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an agribusiness recruiter, and it is my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. I hesitated a little bit there saying every week because, as you know, if you're a regular listener, I have had to take a little bit of time off lately. So I wanted to start the show here today by just thanking you uh, for your patience and for for sticking with me. It's been an eventful month. My uh, to put a long story short, my uh, my wife, uh, her water broke uh, 10 weeks early for, for our son. Uh, through the miracles of modern medicine, they were able to to keep him in there for an extra four weeks so we can get to the 34-week mark. And he was born at 34 weeks and, and spent uh, a little over two weeks in the NICU after that. He is now home, and I am back on my regular schedule. And so it uh, it has been an eventful month, but, but one with a very happy outcome. And I really appreciate your patience as we have re-release some old episodes, um, being as though I have not been able to record. So I am back and thank you again. Very excited for this show here today. We have on the show Tyler Mayoris. He is the principal of the Food and Agribusiness Fund at Advantage Capital Partners. Uh, Tyler is a private equity investor who focuses on building branded food and sustainable agriculture companies. Some of his brands that he's invested in in the past includes Farmhouse Culture, Fish People, Hip Chick, Farms, Nurture Me, Shenandoah Growers, uh, and Vintage Italia, among others. He's also an angel investor uh, in brands such as Simple Mills and Tiesta Tea. So very excited to bring Tyler on the show, a unique perspective. Uh, He is very interested in things such as plant-based meats, um, allergy-free type foods, probiotics, and a whole bunch more. So I loved having his unique perspective on, especially that of, of someone who is putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, in terms of investing in some of these ideas about the future of agriculture. Really enjoyed this interview. I think you will too. Here is my interview with Tyler Mayoris of the Food and Agribusiness Fund at Advantage Capital Partners. Well, I have been meaning to to uh, try to line up an interview with somebody who does venture capital investing in ag and private equity investing in ag for a long time. And lo and behold, I found someone who's done a little bit of both. Uh, so, Tyler, maybe if you could just start off by telling us all uh, the type of investing that you do there at Advantage Capital Partners. Absolutely. Uh, so I am a, a principal at Advantage Capital. I'm, I'm one of the three uh, members that manage the Food and Agribusiness Fund. It's a $155 million fund focused on primarily uh, better for you foods and sustainable agriculture. And we invest across the United States, but with a focus on rural areas, non-urban. We're organized as an RBIC, which is something the USDA created to stimulate job growth in rural parts of the country. So about 90% of our investments have to go into non-urban areas. We currently have 12 platform companies uh, seven of which are in the food space and five of which are in agriculture, um, although several of them are crossover between the two. And uh, generally, we will invest in growth companies, 
uh, and most of, companies have to have at least two million of revenue before we'll invest. And we're generally trying to invest between seven and twelve million into a company over time. But we'll start at much smaller amounts for growth companies. Okay, interesting. A lot, a lot to dissect there. So uh, I, I imagine uh, your commitment to to investment in rural spaces is. is uh, partially influenced by this RBIC. Well, what does that look like in practice? How is the the government involved in in terms of both um, how you invest and, and what does that look like for the advantage for for uh, advantage capital? Yeah, so we are one of I believe three or four comp- RBICs right now. It's called it stands for Rural Business Investment Corp. It was created by the USDA. And really the only advantage to us is that it allows farm credit banks to invest into the private equity fund. There's no leverage involved like an SBIC. Um, so, but it, it does, the USDA is very interested in seeing rural communities grow since so many people have left rural communities to go to urban areas. And the farm credit banks are also very incented to try to get those communities to grow. And so that's really how it all came about uh, originally. And we're we're probably the largest uh, of the RBIC funds right now, but there's several more. Uh, and it's, it's a growing area that the USDA is very committed to uh, building. And how, how did you get into this? Are you from the rural background or have you been interested in food and ag a long time? So I've been involved in private equity for probably 14 years before I joined Advantage uh, three years ago. And and I had done, been primarily a generalist, so investing across a lot of different industries. But along the way, I had done several food companies, including Boca Burger, which was a, a non-meat veggie burger company that um, we helped, uh, we invested in along with some other investors and helped grow that from seven to 50 million in revenue before selling to Kraft. And just really liked the space. And so when they had raised this mu- this fund in late 2014, they were looking for somebody with both private equity experience and uh, agribi- agribusiness and food experience. So I, I fit that bill. Cool. I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that Boca Burger. It seems like, you know, right now we're, it, it seems like the, the uh, uh, meatless meats are starting to kind of come out, you know, come out of the woodwork a little bit. So it seems like you might've been a little bit before your time there. Is there, is that a challenge from an investor perspective? Cause you're basically creating a category, right? Yeah. Back then we, we weren't the only one, but, um, this was 97 to about 2000 when, or 96 to 2000 when we, when we were invested in that company. And, uh, there were several other folks and we actually benefited from a company called garden burger that was did a Super Bowl ad and was really trying to grow the category. So there were a few other people, but back then most of the veggie burgers were grainy, tasted very much like grain um, quinoa type burgers, etc. They they didn't taste like the real meat that you're seeing now from Beyond Burgers or Beyond Meat and Impossible uh, Foods. So. It was kind of a different industry, but it was it was growing at the time. And now it's really just taken off as a total industry, plant based foods in general. Right. And that's uh, that's a place I, I imagine you, you spend a great deal of, of your concentration from an investment perspective. Do you think that that's it's still early days in, in the sort of plant based uh, meat substitute type 
space? Yeah, absolutely. And plant-based foods, there's a lot of different categories within that. Um, but as we look at the industry, there's several trends that are going on that are really macro that'll be around for a while. One of those is the move toward organic in general. And you know, that, that growth has been dramatic. It's been organic food sales have grown by 56% in the last five years to over $47 billion. And we don't see that slowing down. That's going to continue. It continues to be very important among consumers, especially those under 40 years old. And then the other one is plant-based foods. Uh, and I had some, I, just let me pull up. A, I had some facts that are pretty interesting there. Um, the total market for plant-based foods in the last 52 weeks ending August 31st was $3.1 billion, and it's been growing about 8% a year. But it's really set to explode and is expected to be over $10 billion by 2020. And one of the most interesting stats was from a, a study by Global Data, a research firm, and they said that now, historically, about 1.6% of people were identifying as vegan. And, and now in the latest year, three, three years later, it's 6%, which is a massive number, about 19 million people. Um, and one of the other interesting tidbits from that study was that Germany now 44% of the population eats a low meat diet. And I would say Germany's kind of a little advanced on the whole green revolution, if you will, from, from where we are. So definitely a huge trend that we see continuing. And, and we're looking to, we have a couple companies in that that are not necessarily focused on that space, but play in that space. And we're looking to add more for sure. And now plant-based, uh, that would include like even grain-based, right? Because I know the gluten-free is a totally different, totally different trend, but would, yes. you know, would wheat-based products still be considered plant-based? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest players in the in the frozen category for plant-based foods is Sweet Earth Foods, and and all of their foods have wheat in them because they use seton, which is the gluten protein, as the base for making their kind of meat alternative that are in their products. Yeah. So some people use seton, some people use soy, uh, which is tofu, and and other people just don't have a, a meat alternative. They use legumes and pulses and other things that have high protein. Right. Well, I, I imagine that that growth in in plant based demand, much of that is coming from urban areas would, would just be my my random guess. And I know your fund is focused a lot on companies that are supported in rural areas. So is it is it hard to kind of merge the two people who are interested in this more progressive style of uh, agri food and agribusiness, but also are supporting kind of a rural economy? Yeah, it's it's. um. So the way we look at it, about about 40% of the companies we look at are rural or close to rural and could move before we invested. And so, yes, certainly there's 60% of companies that we're, we're not able to look at. But really, where a company's located is, is a little less uh, important at, as to where their customer base is. Um, so many companies are might be established in a rural area, for instance, Jackson's Honest, which makes chips that are um, use coconut oil, very rural company, but all, all of their sales are going to be in, in 
urban spots. Okay. And, and obviously as, as these spaces grow, I would imagine kind of the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, you know, the, the differentiation point is either organic or plant-based or, or gluten-free, whatever the case may be. But as that space becomes more competitive, how, how do companies differentiate themselves from each other? And so that people aren't just buying it. Oh yeah. Plant-based I'm buying it. You know, how do they weigh one plant-based versus another? Yeah. Everybody has um, a little bit different competitive uh, focus, if you will, and and so there there's several other trends that are going on in the, in the natural space, including the rise of food allergies, which uh, for the longest time um, had, had been growing six seven percent a year, but most people thought it was focused on children, and some recent studies have come out that that adults are are getting food allergies as adults, about 45% of adults that have food allergies says that, say that, that it came on while they were adults. So that's a growing trend. Um, and then functional foods is a growing trend too. And so things with superfoods added or probiotics added and whatnot. So I think most companies are focusing on a niche where they can differentiate themselves. So they may be in plant-based, but they also have probiotics or, um, and really focused on some subset of that sector. And that's how they build their competitive advantage against others. Okay. And uh, for for you all, I know you had mentioned earlier that you have the 12 platform companies and typically companies are coming to you with about 2 million in revenue and you're investing, you know, somewhere plus or minus 7 million over time in them. Now, do you, um, is it more like a private equity in terms of you're going to um, be part of the management of that uh, company or is it more like venture capital where you're fueling that growth? Yeah. So let me just um, back up a little bit and um, differentiate a little from what you said. The, we, for early stage companies, emerging brands and ag tech companies, we'll generally get involved with those companies between two and 15 million of revenue. For larger established companies that are just looking to grow or make acquisitions, uh, we tend to invest in companies with 10 to 100 million of revenue. So our largest company right now has about 110 million of revenue. Um, and we have the, probably the smallest company now is maybe about four, four or five million of revenue. Um, but for the earlier stage companies, a lot of times we'll invest two to three million initially and then invest more 18 months, 12 to 18 months, and probably do that one more time after that, as well as bring in other smart investors from the sector. And then for larger companies, we tend to invest more upfront. It's still growth capital, but they don't, they're not gonna need the same amount of capital later as an early stage company would. Got it. And with your commitment to health and sustainability, is this considered impact investing or would that be something totally different? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so Advantage Capital, everything that Advantage does is impact investing. In addition to our food and ag fund, they also invest using different government programs like new market tax credits into good companies and bad neighborhoods around the country. And so that's very impact oriented jobs into just really highly distressed areas. Um, for us, we have the rural focus, which is somewhat impact, but then we also have 
our focus is to invest in companies that are better for you, foods or sustainable agriculture. And so that adds a different element of impact in, in what we're doing, for sure. Right. Yeah, and, I, and I know a lot of the, the trends right now among consumers are for something that see, that, that is perceived as more natural, uh, perceived as less processed, uh, et cetera. But then also there's th- this other, you know, this other viewpoint about how technology can actually make us more healthy and more sustainable. And whether that be, you know, in um, in plant based meats or, or something else, that's very, very technological, you know, high tech and maybe not as, you know, quote unquote, um, direct from the farm. H- how do you weigh those two together as far as where do you fall on? Is it so simple as, you know, more natural is better or technology is better? Kind of help us try to navigate those waters if you could. Yeah, there's. There's definitely a trend right now to figuring out what your perfect diet would be, and it's different for everyone. So there's um, holistic medicine and um, that, that where people are testing themselves and, and trying to find out what the different levels of uh, chemicals are in their body and then trying to optimize to through both supplements as well as foods that they should be eating. Uh, there's a company out on the West Coast called Habit that's trying to do it um, through um, similar to what 23andMe did for DNA. They're they're trying to do something similar to figure out what your food, what your body's makeup looks like, and then try to optimize nutrition around that. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that's going to be for everyone. I think that that's certainly an urban and um, early adopter type program. But I think that there, there'll definitely be more of a trend to try to find out what the what your what fits for you. And this whole rise of food allergies is another example. There are people that are getting tested for 160 foods and, and then just determining some of them are not actually allergies, but just intolerances and saying, OK, well, I need to stay away from this food because it's just going to give upset my stomach, et cetera, as I age. So. Could, could you, uh, would, is it possible for you, would you, would you be able to give us one of your portfolio companies and just kind of give us a sort of a before, tell us the story of when they came to you, how you got connected with them and kind of what it looks like now after you guys have started to work together? Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> one of the companies I work on is called Nurture Me and they're a baby food company, baby and toddler food company. And uh, it was a real interesting company when we started looking at them. They're down near Austin, but uh, outside of the Austin city limits. Uh, so they're rural. And um, we they were a quinoa-based baby food company that was primarily gluten-free, but they really weren't pushing the gluten-free side of things. And, and I'm gluten-free and, and really liked that space and read several books and knew that it was growing far beyond the allergy side of things. There, there are some real compelling reasons why most people or some people shouldn't eat gluten or at least to cut it down on it. And so as I was looking at it, I, lo- I was attracted to that, but we were really co- concerned about whether an ingredient was a defensible niche in and of itself. And we scheduled out all the ingredients of all the competitors and, and really looked at the space and realized, wow, they're very close to being all allergy free and nobody else is even at all close and would take a couple of years to try to even replicate. And 
So we talked with management and, and they loved the idea. And, and we ended up moving the company with our investment to an allergy-free platform. And, and then they made the genius move of adding probiotics and making it the tummy-friendly baby food, which um, uh, it's free of eggs, soy, wheat, and, and gluten, and um, dairy, and, which are really the tummy irritants, if you will. And so they do baby and toddler food and growing dramatically. They they took the first six months. We really had to just kind of get the subcontractors in line, get all our claims correct and on our packaging, et cetera. And then they uh, really came out at Expo West, which was in March of this year. And since then, have added three or four large retailers, including Target and Kroger and really have some great momentum going now uh, into the new year. So we're really excited about that. And again, something where we probably played a little bit more of a role than we would normally play on the strategy um, because we saw an underserved niche and together with management kind of crafted something that, that met that. And Tyler, other than, other than the allergy free, what other kind of sub segments of this space, um, uh, are are exciting to you about the future companies that it, you know spaces you would like to find some more companies in to potentially invest? Yeah, so we um, let's see, we we love probiotics. We have a company that's called Farmhouse Culture that we're invested in in the probiotic space. And if you know anything about gut health, there, there's been several new books about it, but historically, people thought gut health was really all about immunity and that you needed good gut health to to stay, keep yourself from being sick, et cetera. But now the latest studies have shown that actually gut health controls your brain and um, can good gut health can offset depression, early Alzheimer's, um, just a host of things. And it could affect autism. And so gut health is very important. And that's why you see the rise of kombuchas and um just a whole host of yogurts and kefir drinks, et cetera, that all have high probiotic counts. And, and farmhouse culture specifically focuses on um, probiotic-rich foods and, and drinks that are based on fermented vegetables, like sauerkraut and beets and, and things like that. So uh, they've been growing very rapidly. Um, some of the other spaces we've got, we've got companies in clean ingredients uh, for, we've got a couple protein companies. One is chicken. They make hip chick farms. They make frozen clean ingredient chicken products. So organic, non-GMO. And unlike other folks that make chicken strips and chicken nuggets, they don't form any of their product. It's not ground up meat goop. It's actual cuts of cuts of meat. Uh, and then we've got a company in the sustainable seafood space called Fish People. And what they 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 control their landings. So they have um, an end-to-end solution and it's all line caught, sustainably caught seafood. But the most compelling piece of that is they um, can are fully transparent. You can trace back your fish with a little code from the package all the way back, use on their website. Um, and you can see the actual captain and boat that caught the fish, which is really um, unheard of in the industry, which is 
about 35 to 50 percent of fish that you eat or buy at retail is mismarked. So it's a big problem in the industry and they're providing full transparency, which is uh, kind of a game changer there. But so those are, you know, that's what we're seeing on, on the food side. On, on the agriculture side, we're seeing a lot with organic soils and um, amendments. So we have a company called Cascade Agronomics up in Washington state, and they provide organic soils to farmers. We have um, the largest organic, uh, the, the largest provider of fresh herbs in the country is a company called Shenandoah Growers out in Virginia, and they merged with their largest rival, Herbco. And so they now, that was the company I meant that's over, that I mentioned was over hundred million in revenue. And they provide both live potted herbs as well as fresh cut herbs into grocery stores across the United States. And what's interesting about them is they started out as a greenhouse and they slowly migrated and now 50% of the growing time is under LED lights. So they're becoming more and more of a, a technology driven indoor agriculture company. And that's just a, a fact, a factor of the, the dr declining costs of LED lights and, and the energy that they require. So pretty interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, this this recent shift and I say recent and it's not really maybe that's not the right word to use, but uh, the increased interest among consumers in where their food comes from, how it's produced, uh, et cetera. Do you see that as kind of this like, you know, zeitgeist, like this big sh permanent shift that's going to stay this way? Um, and if so, kind of what's making you think that it's it's here to stay? Yeah, I think that people are very so. A lot of the whole food revolution is being driven by people under 40, the millennials and Generation Z. And what I think is really driving that are two factors. One, it's the access to information through the Internet. So there's podcasts, there's um, just articles and audible books and just so much so many more ways to gain information about nutrition and where your food comes from and sustainability and climate change, et cetera. And then the other factor, frankly, is Netflix and Hulu and the other streaming services, because in the past, when you had to go to Blockbuster to, to rent a DVD, you weren't going to get a food documentary. But on Netflix, people are watching. They're very popular, the food documentaries like Forks Over Knives and Sustainable. And so people are watching those and they're getting more educated and 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 frankly uh, real foodies in the millennial and generation z sector are as educated as any consumer has ever been in the past and that's really what's driving all this now with regard specifically to the where the food come from there was a big push maybe two years ago uh, toward local foods and that push was gaining a lot of momentum, but then really kind of became offset by the whole Chipotle problem because Chipotle went to local and they had a lot of different small distributors. And frankly, you can't, you, you don't have the same level of food safety with real small players locally produced necessarily. Now they're obviously very good ones. Um, 
but generally you need to be of a certain size to start getting that kind of food safety scrutiny. And, and so I think that there's, that's being a little bit offset by the food safety issues. And, and I'm not sure where that'll all end up at the end of the day, but people are definitely concerned about where their food comes from, but they also want it to be safe. Great. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Really appreciate this. I, uh, I know you are quite active on Twitter. Uh, if somebody wants to reach yeah. out to you and follow up with this conversation a little bit, uh, how can they reach you on Twitter? Yeah. So it's just my name, Tyler Mayoris uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, that, that would be great. Love to, love to catch up and, uh, and enjoy being on the show. And thanks so much for the opportunity. Well, thank you. Yeah, we'll include that in the show notes and really appreciate this. Excited to, to uh, put this out there and, and uh, enc- encourage this conversation. Thanks again to Tyler for being on the show. Really enjoyed that conversation and uh, some really interesting and non-traditional ideas, which, as you know, I love bringing onto the show there. So I hope you enjoyed that. Would love to continue the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Tim Hamrich. Uh, This is the point in the show where I usually say, hey, leave us an iTunes review. But as you know, the uh, the iPhone update has been horrible for podcasts. I'm not sure if you're even still using the the um, iPhone or iTunes for for your podcast. I know I have switched whatever you're using to listen to this podcast my ask to you today would be just to subscribe to the show so that you get it automatically downloaded every week good for you it's good for me and uh, then we can continue this conversation about the people places and ideas and companies shaping the future of agriculture so please to do this glad to be back in the saddle we'll be back next week Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.